0: The GIST is sponsored by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, just in time for the holidays. Get $5 off the Winter Winston model, even if you're a returning customer. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code THEGISTHOLIDAY. That promo code again, THEGISTHOLIDAY. The following
1: podcast
0: contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, December fourth, two 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today on the show, a friend of mine and a really great journalist and broadcaster, David Green, will be here. He'll be talking about his journeys throughout Russia, through the Trans-Siberian Railroad. But David's skills as an internationalist really came in handy in a different way on NPR recently. Here he was, he was doing this long interview with this guy named Griff Rees. He's a Welshman, and David talked to him, because Griff has an ancestor who came to America over 200 years ago, and this guy went searching for a set of mythical Welsh speakers. I'm going to say mythical, yeah, I think they were mythical. I don't think any Native Americans actually, like, were born speaking Welsh. What do I know? So to give you a sense of what Griff Rees sounds like, what David was listening to when he was talking to Rees, here's Griff Rees talking.
0: Everything west of the Mississippi at the time, was under the jurisdiction of the Spanish king.
1: And there were times where David essentially translated from Welsh-accented English into American-accented English, like this part.
0: It was also believed to be a herd of unicorn in the Rocky Mountains. Unicorns in the Rockies, okay.
1: Okay. So far, so good. But then there was this part. And I won't tell you beforehand what I thought I heard. Let's just play the bit. And
0: he was asked to capture a specimen and bring it back alive. Another instruction was should John Evans see any British forts in Spanish territory, he should try and retake these forts
1: Wait, if he sees any British farts try to take the farts? How do you retake a fart? I mean, once it's released into the wild. Or maybe he was thinking of it like a noun. You know, your old fart synonym for twit. I was pondering these issues and I kind of played it back in my mind or more literally on the NPR One app. And I heard that he actually said, if you see any British forts in Spanish territory.
0: He should try and retake these forts.
1: Oh, British forts. Retaking a fort much less ephemeral, could have used some translation. So there will be no Welshman on the show today, but in the spiel, I will talk about the reaction to the tragic death of Eric Garner on Staten Island and the decision not to indict the policeman. We'll be talking about the conversation that's occurring, especially in conservative corners, and what I found interesting and actually pretty hopeful. But first, to Siberia we go. David Green, a host of NPR's Morning Edition, has written a new book. It's called Midnight in Siberia, A Train Journey into the Heart of Russia. David is here. Hello, David.
0: Mike, it is good to see you. It's
1: great to see you. Now, early on in the book, you talk about why you decided to take the Moscow bureau chief job. You write about you had a nice, warm ap- apartment in New York City's East Village. You had covered the White House for eight years. You had done some economic reporting in New York, and you had a hankering for a foreign assignment. I want to ask you, are you sure it wasn't that the guy you were assigned to sit next to in New York just talked too much and was horrible to take? <laughs> Who was that guy? David Falkenflick. Falkenflick? Oh, no, it was Mike Pesca. It was yes, Mike yes, Pesca. Yes. That's
0: right. You drove me away. Yeah, your, your chattering Pretty drove much. me away. Your we spiel drove, drove me away. We drove you into
1: the arms of Vladimir
0: Putin. Exactly. Thank you for banishing me to Siberia. So
1: when you were the Moscow correspondent, you were based in Moscow, you reported mostly from Moscow, but you wanted to and what this book does is go to the heart of Russia. If we just rely on r- Russia reporting and it's mostly Moscow based, what are we missing as American news consumers?
0: I don't know. I'll t- I'll take you to one example, and I think it says a lot. In In 2011, which is actually when I did the first trip on the Trans-Siberian, there were these protests in Moscow, anti-Putin protests. People were out there on the streets calling for Putin to go. It's a big deal. I mean, this is a country where Putin once said, if you're on the streets without permission to protest, you should be clubbed in the head. That tells you something. It's courageous. But a lot of the stories that were coming out of Moscow seemed to be suggesting that this was Russia's Arab Spring. Yeah. This was their moment of revolution. You get out on the train, you go in, you know, into other parts of the country, and you just didn't get that sense. It's much more nuanced. There's something stirring. People want change. They want something different. But this is not a country that was ready to topple a leader and have its own Arab Spring. So do you like trains? I love trains. I mean, I always loved trains and, you know, but now Amtrak is probably going to be just boring as hell. Um after What in its this.
1: efficiency and heat and lack of 68-cent noodles? Well,
0: efficiency, I would say <laughs> maybe the Trans-Siberian is, I mean, it runs on time. I don't know how often you go on Amtrak between yeah, Washington true. and New York, but um it's just, there's a lot of life on the train it's the best people watching in the world watching people you know like in their underwear sneaking cigarettes in the middle of the night it's the sounds and smells i mean people would just you're on top of each other you have to climb on someone else's face to get up to an upper bunk i mean it's uh, snoring at night is orchestral i mean you, you hear like one sort of tempo snore start as you're going to bed then another then another it comes together in an orchestra you can't sleep at all but you're like this is fun somehow how many to a car in third class Uh, it's a few dozen, I would say, and it's all an open dorm room. So you and I are sitting what about like two or three feet apart. I mean, we would have four other people kind of in this space with us, sleeping, drinking tea, drinking vodka, talking, you know, bothering each other, stepping on each other, uh, complaining to each other. Um, it's, you know, it feels like a, a big, you know, dorm room. And what so what's first class like? Uh, first class, I mean you get your own uh your own kind of cabin with two two uh two cots, basically. And it's very romantic. I mean my wife Rose and I did it a few times. When um, you
1: went when you went with Rose <laughs> Poor Rose. Poor Rose, right? If you hear that Rose, I, I recognize <laughs>
0: that this was not always fun for you.
1: I know Rose, she is so lovely. Um did you ever do third class with Rose? Would you ever subject her to that? <laughs> This
0: is actually a really bad story. I uh, the last trip I did, um, she came to join me for a week and I hadn't told her we were going third class. And we got onto the train and she was she was sort of shell shocked. She's like, what, what what is this? Where are the where are the little private rooms? And I said, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And this was the only train that happened to be all men, young men who were coming to look for construction work from Central Asia. And she was horrified. They're all staring at her. She took her iPhone, Mike, and she she started recording a video. And she said, hello, future children. If you are seeing this, it means I'm still married to your father, even though he put me through this. And she started panning around to all these guys who were gawking at her. It was awful. I'm surprised she's still married to me.
1: So how many Sir guys show up in the book? (laughs) <laughs> it's
0: the Sergei Sergei yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's um uh there are a lot of them and yeah. including NPR's Moscow producer Sergei Sotnikov who yeah. uh who's a dear friend of mine and uh interpreter and we we kind of we did these trips together and got to know each other really really well
1: well chapter two is Sergei chapter four is another Sergei and yeah. chapter 17 is yet another Sergei yeah. and I gotta imagine that some of the Ivans or Vasileys has names have been changed from Sergei
0: <laughs> you think? No, no, no. Just no, no. an
1: oriental. Ivan,
0: Ivan and Vasily are two pretty common names, too. But, the, but there don't seem to be that many. The menu of names is pretty small in Russia.
1: Okay. I would like you to read from the book, if you would. I could do so that. So here we are talking about you're in Chelyabinsk, and uh, you're noting about how uh, John Stewart showed dashboard videos from all these cars. Yeah. And it seemed like many Russians had recorded the video. If you remember from YouTube, so many great shots and the meteor streaking past. And as John Stewart noted, no one really reacts. They're pretty unfazed. And then you explain about all the stuff that does happen. So if you would read from page 193 right there in the middle, it was there for. Sure. Yeah. There's a reason I want you to read this.
0: It was therefore no surprise to Russians when a meteorite happened to land in the country, not even to me and Rose then having lived there for just three years. Crazy shit just happens there. Of course it landed in Russia, Rose said to me on the phone from home as Sergey and I were still in Yaroslavl. Rose, we've got to go to Chelyabinsk. Of course you do, she said. We're driving toward a hotel. Sergey asks Oleg, who is our driver, yeah. if the meteorite is still all the talk in Shelyabinsk a week after the landing. Oh, yes, he says, chuckling. There's still ads on television. One's for a new door. The ad has a wife saying to her husband, honey, what are you waiting for, to buy a new door for the next asteroid? Oleg laughs at this punchline. I was home, he said. My first thought was it was a missile. My second thought, maybe a plane crashed. My dog hit under the sofa. I couldn't even woo her out with sausage. And then I wrote, at least Russian dogs are freaked out.
1: <laughs> so I wanted to, uh, I wanted you to share that because I want to assure the potential reader, this is not the genteel morning edition. The acknowledgement of crazy shit is written in this book. Crazy
0: shit is written in this but book. But
1: also, the meteor adventure seemed pretty cool. It was <laughs> pretty cool. I mean, I'm kind of a Star Wars
0: nut. I mean, the idea of actually touching a piece of space, like I wanted to find one of these pebbles that actually come from space, an intergalactic souvenir, and, and I was... Who could pass up the chance to go look for that when you're
1: in the country? How soon do you get out of kind of judgment phase or always comparing this is the way they do it in Russia? Seems weird and often empirically worse than America. Does that fade away? Do you ever really lose that? You're there for what, three years?
0: Three years. Hardest thing in the book. Hardest thing in that job. And I actually I was in. I was in Crimea recently on a reporting trip, and uh, went with a, a fantastic Morning Edition colleague. And I kept, you know, I kept preaching about like, oh, you know, you're seeing something that you know is the reality in Russia compared to the United States. And she would just say, I actually don't think it's all that different. And, and so she was really a check on me, and and that was the hardest thing in, in doing this, you know, not to constantly be preaching to listeners or to readers like, well, this is the way it happens in Russia, this is the way it happens in the United States, and instead to just really let the people and the stories kind of expose themselves and and you could you could kind of pass your own judgment because it's tough I mean it's you you're in a place you're expected to report on it and explain to Americans yes. what's different about it right but you don't so, want you don't want to draw conclusions or you know do too much of that
1: so but now here is Russia we can't say you don't want to ever paint with a broad brush Russia is a country of almost one hundred fifty million people there's a lot of different opinions in Russia but what's a good way to explain A very, very hard to pin down concept, but the character of the Russian people and maybe what Americans don't get about Russia, either from a understanding other peoples of the world's perspective or even a foreign policy perspective. You know, Russia's a potential enemy or maybe even an enemy now of the United States. So what about the Russian people? Would you like to explain to an average American?
0: This idea that I had at the end of the Soviet Union, that Russia and Russians would be on this inevitable path to our style of democracy and our st- and our values, that's just not an assumption that's accurate. Yeah, some Russians talk about that, but but a lot of Russians who know about the world, who know what values we hold dear, who know the American system, also for one reason or another are not longing at this moment to have exactly what we have. Yeah, and and there are a lot of reasons for that, and and it strikes me, Mike, because especially now with with Ukraine and with Russia, it's like it's not as if People have a menu of ideologies and political systems. They sit there going, oh, well, let me think about this. Do, you, do, you, do I want to tick the box for democracy or do I want to tick the box for authoritarian crazy man or do I want, well, you know, what box do I want to tick? People think about their lives. It's like during the Yeltsin years in Russia, democracy had a chance to prove itself. And it was seen by many Russians as a failure. In Ukraine, Orange Revolution time. Democracy had a chance to prove itself. A lot of Ukrainians thought that afterwards the government was just as corrupt as it always was. So it's like people are in Russia and, and Ukraine, they're open to democracy. But, you know, they don't believe in it. It's not like they're against it. It's not like they want a leader like Vladimir Putin. They're open-minded. They think about their lives and and what would make their lives better. But, you know, but they're not jumping to democracy. And, and, you know, they're pondering a future right
1: now. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, actually, that's not that different from America because Americans want results, too. And we're not that obsessed with process. And if you look about, like, the lesson of the last election, I think the lesson was bad results. Let's change. Everyone everywhere wants good results.
0: I think that's a good point, but I wonder if, you know, would Americans ever get to the point where they would abandon kind of the core values? You know, it it feels like even... Well, I
1: also think, I mean, you say, I know exactly what you mean when you say democracy was given a chance. I mean, in the minds of those people, democracy was given a chance, but the if the institutions aren't strong the people will often overwhelm them and i think that's what putin did you know you call it democracy democracy doesn't mean an election democracy means civic institutions they never were functionally in place with russia they kind of never had a chance against a charismatic strong man who was actually really really good at pulling the levers of strong manhood
0: and he I filled think. the void i mean yeah. you you look at democracy had its chance you know, democracy didn't really have its chance to, to build up the institutions you're talking about. And Putin came in, was able to, to fill that void and now is able to use the propaganda machine to make Russians believe that they're not mature enough for real, real democracy. And the message that they're getting from Vladimir Putin is if we give democracy another try, it will be just as awful an experiment as it was during the Yeltsin years. So we'll let you do your thing because we don't want that.
1: All right. Lightning round. Most disgusting thing you ate on your trip in the trains in Siberia? Horse sausage. Worst smell you experienced?
0: Farting on the train.
1: Who, you or a neighbor? A neighbor. Sergei? No. (laughs) Um, Most shots of vodka you drank in one night? Twelve. Really? Maybe
0: more. Uh, Yeah. I don't remember the rest.
1: Russian tradition or product that you would most like to experience upon your return to the United States?
0: Sitting and drinking all night and not feeling guilty about it.
1: Russian tradition or product that you're so happy you never have to deal with again?
0: Not being able to shake someone's hand across a doorway because they'll scream at you and say it's bad luck. Banyas,
1: sweating in the banyas, good or bad?
0: Oh, man. Good in the end, but really painful.
1: Coldest you ever were?
0: In Lake Baikal. I was borderline frostbite on my toes. They were turning uh, different shades of white and almost black.
1: David Green is the author of Midnight in Siberia, a train journey into the heart of Russia. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike. So you ever think about giving razors as a gift around the holidays? Probably not. Here are a few bad ways to give razors. One, toss them across the room under the tree. Three, in place of a menorah. Like a razor, impale the candles there, that probably won't work. Worst way to give razors, in the fruitcake. Best way to give razors, via Harry's razor. And I got something for you. Because maybe you've listened to the gist, maybe you've heard me say, hey, if you're gonna support a sponsor and gonna support the gist by using a code, why not Harry's, you gotta shave anyway. And you've used the code and you've gotten your $5 off. This offer extends even to everyone who's already used the code before, and you know that Harry's is great. This is called the Winter Winston Set. The Winter Winston set is a razor, three quality blades, a tube of foaming and shaving gel, and it's normally 30 bucks. but they'll give it to you for 25 bucks if you use the code THEGISTHOLIDAY. So, go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. enter the coupon code THEGISTHOLIDAY and check out for $5 off the Winter Winston. Harry's, a shave good enough to gift... And now, the spiel, the right take on the police in excessive force. The death of Eric Garner was heartbreaking. The decision not to indict the officer was backbreaking, in that it broke the resolve of many who normally give police every benefit of the doubt, the usual defenders of police, people who said either that the Ferguson shooting was justified, or who said, as I did, that the shooting wasn't right and it was terrible policing, but that doesn't mean that there should have been an indictment if you go by the letter of the law. But the death of Staten Islander Eric Garner is in a different category. Take Charles Krauthammer, always on Fox News, a Fox News all-star, he's called. He was not saying the usual stuff about how we need not look at this incident, we should look at black-on-black crime. He wasn't saying that the victim brought it on himself. Here's what he was saying. From looking at the video, the grand jury's decision here is totally incomprehensible. Uh, It looks as if at least they might have indicted him. Uh, on something like involuntary in manslaughter at the the, the very least. Uh, the guy actually said, I can't breathe, which ought to be a signal that, and the guy was unarmed and the, the, the crime was as petty as they come. That last bit about cigarette peddling being a crime as petty as they come, that was jumped on by Salon, which characterized reactions like Krauthammer's as, quote, the right-wing response to Eric Garner's death blame Bloomberg and NYC's cigarette tax. You know, I think that's unfair. A lot of conservatives were decrying police brutality, and they were saying there should have been an indictment. Sure, they were also blaming the underlying law for being quote-unquote ridiculous, but you know what? That's not so different from, say, this cri de corps of a Staten Island resident who was quoted on NPR. A man's life was taken for misdemeanor action. For selling cigarettes, loose cigarettes, you're going to lose your life over that? Come on, it, it had to have been a better way. Unlike the Ferguson case, I see the right and left coming together on this issue. Not all of the right, but a lot of the right. We heard from Crowdhammer. and went on the website of the National Review. They seemed to take a while to process the Garner non-indictment. There was no article up as of 6 o'clock this morning. But by, a little later in the day, they had a couple of prominent posts saying the grand jury may have gotten it wrong. May, but still. Now, over on Glenn Beck's site, The Blaze, the news coverage was pretty straight down the middle. But many, and maybe even a slight majority of commentators, wanted an indictment. Yeah, there were law and order conservatives who argued law and order that Garner shouldn't have resisted arrest. But then there were others, like Flyover Country, who argued, quote... History will likely lump these two, meaning Garner and Ferguson, will lump these two instances together, but I think they are different. Darren Wilson intended to use deadly force and was exonerated in doing so. This guy in New York did not intend to use lethal force, and it became lethal. I believe Michael Brown got what he deserved, but Eric Garner did not. This instance should see a trial. Now over at Newsmax, an article quoted former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Kerik. Without, it should be noted, informing readers that he is also ex felon Bernie Kerrick. But the headline was "XNYPD NYPD Chief Kerrick on Garner case, you cannot resist arrest. Some commenters agreed, but many didn't. User named Flyover Country wrote, What is wrong with giving the citizen say five minutes with the officer to calm down and realize the futility of resisting? In my experience, the commenters on these sites are true, self-identified conservatives, and the disagreement over the justice given was genuine. Now, you could argue that it is a failure of empathy or imagination to see the Michael Brown case as not also being excessive, even if Brown had just robbed a convenience store. That's just not how conservatives see it, however. And you could blame conservatives for failing to see that there is a racial element in the Garner case. That they need the libertarian cigarette tax element as cover for their ire might be a flaw. But I don't look at it that way. I look at this optimistically. The left is universally appalled by what happened to Eric Garner. Most of the American middle, or even people who are not at all politically engaged, don't understand why the NYPD had to go to all those lengths to subdue Eric Garner. And many, if not most, on the vocal right are disturbed by it too. As I have said before, there is no such thing as a perfect victim, but Eric Garner comes pretty close, and a videotaped one at that, who leaves behind six children in a city where the majority of the population wanted an indictment, where the police commissioner seems genuinely concerned about excessive policing, where the mayor has expressed worry for the safety of his African-American son. Remember before when I said the Eric Garner case was back-breaking? On second consideration, if the hard work of reform is the goal, it just may be spine-stiffening. And that's it for today's show. Look for Just Producer Andrea Salenzi's new book, Dusk on Roosevelt Island, A Tram Excursion. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, is the author of Sunrise in Edina, a Minnesota suburb as experienced through hot air balloon. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is out with a Kindle single, Knott's Berry Farm by Batmobile, an examination of proper nouns that don't make much sense together. You can subscribe in iTunes or give us a listen in Stitcher. If you want our daily email, you can go to Yo, where you sign up for podcast and we'll tell you when the show's ready. Or we'll send you an email if you go to slate.com slash gist email. We're on facebook.com slash gist. You can email the gist at slate.com. I am pleased to announce that I've chronicled My Peripatetic Adventures in Unfortunate Segway, one man's migratory musings on the road from Gdansk to Vilnius via a gently used two-wheeling self-balancing electric scooter. Unfortunate Segway, available on Amazon or in audiobook form as read by Bruce Boxleitner. It makes the perfect stocking stuffer. Order Unfortunate Segway today. And thanks for listening.
0: I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gabfest, you're pregnant and you're fired. The Supreme Court tackles how far companies must go to accommodate pregnant women. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.